Welcome back to the Spirits Guide Podcast. I am Rich, your guide through the intoxicating world of spirits, books, movies, music, and anything really that I feel connects us as human beings. And on this episode, this is the week I almost quit the spirits industry. Uh, one of my absolute favorite parts of, of this sort of spirits world uh, that I, I get to be a part of, you know, I get to do for a living is truly the people I get to meet, uh, the connections I get to make, uh, the stories we get to share. Unfortunately, one of the things I like the least about the industry is some of the people I get to meet and this sort of new bourbon hunter, the, the Indiana Jones of bourbon searching. It, it really almost broke me this week. And you know, thankfully, it was you guys who kind of helped me to keep things in perspective and a great, great book that I just finished that kind of helped to inspire me to keep things in perspective. But that's really what I'm talking about this week is sort of the ups and downs, the goods, the bads, uh, the people that I enjoy connecting with and the people who are taking it too far and are almost ruining the spirits world, but more specifically, the bourbon world. So I'm going to dive into that, uh, and I'm going to do it while drinking, sadly, one of the least hunted American whiskeys in the market, uh, and that is George Dickel. Uh, this is a brand of whiskey that is sadly, sadly overlooked and undervalued, uh, and I'm going to enjoy uh, drinking them while I, I share the stories of this sort of bonkers week. So Hopefully you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making this one. I really did. I do get a little bit off the rails uh, as I start to talk about some of these interactions I had during the week. So I apologize for sort of my insane sounding uh, rambles, but had to get it out. Uh, had to be real. Had to be honest. Had to be me. Uh, hopefully you guys get it and appreciate it. And like I said, hopefully you enjoy it. And if you do, well, you guys know the drill by now. Go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media. Uh, follow on Facebook and Instagram where you can leave comments and reviews of the podcast. I really would love some feedback on this one. Uh, and for anything else, you can actually message me through Facebook and Instagram as well. And for anything else, you can email me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right, guys, hopefully you enjoy. Cheers. All right, so here we are, season three, episode 11. Uh, and this is the week I almost quit the business. It was the week that just kind of went too far. Uh, and I'll talk about why and in, in, in what for later on in the podcast. But really, I don't want to sound whiny, but, you know, I, I really do love what I do. I love the business of my business, uh, which is, you know, obviously the spirits business, you know, and I love the relationships you build with uh, vendors and suppliers and brands and, and my sales reps. And I love the the sort of game and the, the give and take that goes into doing uh, what it is that I get to do, which is, you know, I don't just work in a liquor store. I 
am a buyer for the liquor store. So I get to determine a lot of the products that we carry on our shelves in my store. Uh, and I'd like to believe that they're a, a pretty good reflection of sort of my taste, my uh, sort of awareness of what customers are into uh, with some quirky things, you know, my sort of sense of adventure as far as tasting goes. Uh, well, I thought I would get a bigger sound out of that. I just popped a bottle here. Um, you know, and the other great part of, of my business is, you know, you guys and, you know, really it's the people. And that's why I do what I do is, is for people, for humans, for the, the connections that we make. Unfortunately, the, the terrible side of my industry is also the people. Um, and again, I'll go into a little bit deeper detail on, you know, specifically the bourbon hunters <laughs> and, this week just sort of reached a, a crescendo with you know some of the ridiculousness and in the lengths uh that some of these hunters will go to uh it was just it was a, a week where i i really did just contemplate like i don't want to do this anymore uh and then as always it's you guys out there who kind of saved me and you know you guys coming in and, and visiting me at the store and hanging out and talking and us having drinks together. And it, it almost didn't balance out the scales, but in the end it won out and I'm here. So I'm going to do a little bit of venting about that today. Um, while drinking some amazing whiskey later on, uh, that I just feel is grossly sort of overlooked, uh, in the eyes of most consumers, uh, almost criminally. But to start out, you know, we're getting closer to to warm weather, you know, being outside in the yard and grilling and, and playing cornhole and, and just hanging out with people outside. There's just something there's something different about hanging outside, you know, around the picnic table or whatever. And, you know, because of playing cornhole and grilling in the conversations you have and, you know, we're not in coats anymore. We're in shorts and, and T-shirts and out in the sun, it's it's something sort of just, it, it's life. It's, it's really what it's all about. And, you know, and we're out there and we're consuming, you know, alcoholic beverages. Now, on a hot summer Sunday afternoon, it's not always great to be out there with a glass of bourbon. Um, I feel like when you're warmer, you drink a little bit faster. So, you know, 9,500, 110 proof bourbon in a hot sun. Not always a great thing. I'm not saying um, against it or above it or that I haven't done it. Uh, but a lot of times this is when I really start to reach for, you know, something in a bottle or a can that I can sip on, you know, kind of like a beer. So what I'm drinking here, this this might not be your jam, um, but it is something I, I'm seeing more in, in the store of, you know, this whole sort of, you know, like I talked about last week. The, the White Claw, the Truly, the Long Drink, all these things, you know, that, you know, people are drinking and then, you know, they're just people. Some people are kind of like, all right, enough with the seltzers. You know, I want something else. But, you know, what the seltzers offer and, you know, what like a, a long drink can offer, not in all of their offerings, but they do make a zero sugar. And I really think that that's a big part of what fueled 
this sort of explosion of these, you know, what we call RTDs. Like I said, we talked about it last week, what they are. But the fact that the the low carbs, the, the zero sugar or the low sugar is a big part of, you know, the appeal of these products. And I've seen it in other RTDs where, you know, there's a lower alcohol content, but a really high sugar content and a really high carb count that is tasty as they may be. Uh, they're just not appealing. And especially to somebody like me being diabetic, I, I just can't have that amount of sugar. Um, plus when you're, you're out in the sun, you don't want a lot of sugar anyways. It helps to dehydrate you. So just not good. And again, this might not be your thing, but this is brand new to us. It's actually Mike's Hard Lemonade, the zero sugar version of Mike's. Now, I don't know how they get it down to zero sugar. I don't know if they're using saccharin or monk fruit or some other sweetener um 94 calories on this as well so you know kind of in line with some of these other zero sugar offerings and maybe you know i kind of started come in and it piqued my curiosity to have a another zero sugar uh option to drink for myself again being diabetic uh, i have to avoid the sugar but also from listening to customers who are like, all right, enough with the seltzers. I need something else to kind of wake my palate up. So maybe this is an option. Now, I remember when Mike's launched years ago, it was an absolute phenomenon in the business. Uh, the, the distributors couldn't even keep it in stock. It would come in on a train. They would take it off the train. They didn't even bring it to the distributor. They just put it right on a truck and bring it out to accounts. Uh, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, at that point in my bartending career, at least, where people were just going nuts about it. And that first year, the only real knock on it was it gave you heartburn. And so the second year it was out, they kind of changed the formula to kind of eliminate some of that acidity. And Mike's, you know, as much as we had kind of Zima before that, and there was a couple other things, Mike was really sort of the first big uh, what they were calling at the time malternative. Um, I think now they might even call it like beer plus. Like it kind of drinks like a beer. It acts like a beer. Um, it just doesn't taste like beer. It's something totally different, but provides the same style of, you know, drinkability, you know, and the zero sugar. I don't know if this comes in cans. My store only carries it in six pack bottles and I'm curious. So I figured, uh, why not taste it here and, and, and share this experience with you guys? And I was going to do this earlier in the week. And I know last week I said that I would put out a Thursday night tasting uh, on chartreuse. And then a couple of things happened. One, I caught a really nasty stomach bug last week that just sort of kept me from drinking all week. So these have actually been sitting in my fridge for about five days because I just couldn't drink uh, for a few days. And then, you know, I tried to do the chartreuse thing and then I realized like, there's just so much info and meat on the bone about chartreuse that what I had recorded in a half an hour, I just felt like the, there's so much more to cover. So I kind of tabled that episode. It, it will live in sort of a secret file somewhere uh, in favor of doing a full length episode just on chartreuse uh, because it is magical and it's something that I'm really passionate about and I really love and I really love talking about it. So 
let's try this Mike's uh, Zero Sugar Hard Lemonade. And as far as I know, best of my knowledge, everything I've seen, you know, I know Mike's makes other flavors of Mike's. This is the only flavor um, that I know of that they offer in a zero sugar format. Drinking it straight out of the bottle. Here we go. I'm not going to lie, guys. That's delicious. Now, I don't know how many of them I could drink. Just because, I mean, it's it's lemonade. How many glasses of lemonade can you drink on the regular? But it's refreshing. There's a touch of carbonation there. It tastes like real lemon. Um, again, I don't know how they get the sugar out of there. We're looking at... 4.8%. I mean, this almost drinks like a lemonade seltzer with really light carbonation. Yeah, I have I will have no problem starting off my Sunday afternoon uh, with one of the two of these ice cold. Mm. Yeah, and that, that just, it's very, very fine bubbles. And... Anybody who's drank champagne kind of knows the distinction. Sometimes you get these really big bubbles that just kind of tingle and they dance all over your tongue. Fine bubbles are just like, you know, they're there, but they're really, really tiny bubbles. But they keep whatever sort of sweet flavor there. It cleans it right off your tongue. It cleans up some of the acidity. Uh, I, yeah, I'm really, really happy with that. And I know some of you guys are like, really? Mike's hard lemonade? Look, you know, as much as we kind of joke and, and pick on certain things, drink what you enjoy drinking. Um, you know, if I'm with my friends, I mean, they're, they're probably going to bust my balls for, for drinking a Mike's, but we're still going to be friends and they're still going to be hanging out with me to bust my chops. So uh, all, all in good fun, no doubt, but. I will say if you're out there and you're like, I kind of like Mark's, but uh, I don't want to, you know, uh, I don't know. Like, this is good. I promise you. And if you're kind of tired of White Claw and truly, by the way, Mike's is owned by the same people that own White Claw. Um, so the money's all going to the same uh, big giant uh, pile. This is really, really drinkable. I think I've just had like four sips. So yeah, my approval to the Mike's hard lemonade, zero sugar version. All right. So, you know, I talked about what, you know, what a, just a, a strange week it was. And again, I, I was a little sick, um, but yeah, what a week. Uh, and there's some stuff going on in the industry too. Not a lot of, uh, you know, big release announcements, uh, this week, you know, I haven't seen any press releases on anything, uh, but definitely some interesting kind of news uh, in the spirits world. So here's what we got. And let's start out with the redundant conversation that I seem to be having every week. RTDs. Combine that with the redundancy of celebrity endorsed spirits in RTD brand Oza. O-H-Z-A, which is owned by Joe 
Jonas. Um, he's got an RTD called Oza. And here's the thing. He's secured all these distribution deals in all these states with stores like Total Wine, BevMo, Walmart, Whole Foods, all the big chain stores. So it's probably not coming to my store, thankfully, uh, because I'm pretty sure uh, Total wouldn't cut like a national distribution deal and then allow it to be sold in other stores. But again, there's there's a dual epidemic here. One, of celebrities putting their name on products. Uh, and two, the excessive amount of RTDs that are already in this business, which is not the entire reason for everything going up in price, but it is definitely contributing uh, to a lot of the price increases uh, because somebody's got to pay for this research and development and whoever is distributing them or whoever the master corporation, whether it's Constellation, Diageo, Pernod Ricard, Sazerac, whoever owns it, somebody's got to pay for the research and development and the initial packaging and all the initial product. And that money comes from somewhere and it's coming from us. So I, I guess if you're a Joe Jonas fan, uh, this is for you. But uh, yeah, just another RTD in the market that I don't feel that I, I don't feel like customers are going into my store, Total Wine, Wegmans going, you know what? There's not enough variety in the hard seltzer market. I, If you look, you know, between those two brands, almost every fruit flavor profile you can conjure up between White Claw and Truly, they're out there. Then you get into, you know, Highball, Two Robbers, Wild Basin. There's so many brands of these things. There's just every flavor possibility has been covered by these brands. And yet somebody out there thinks, you know what? We need to get into this already oversaturated market. I, I don't get it. I don't get where this money is coming from. Uh, yeah. Uh, moving on, Green River Distilling, which is part of the Bardstown Bourbon Company. Uh, big news, these guys are kind of hitting the ground running, and they're already expanding uh, their whiskey lineup by adding a weeded bourbon, uh, which has got an MSRP-ish of 35 bucks, and they're offering a single-barrel weeded bourbon uh, for about 60 bucks ish on the shelf. No word yet on if and when those are coming to Massachusetts, but it seems like from what I read, they're in a bunch of states or they're launching in a bunch of states. So I feel like it's just a matter of time uh, before they make their way to Massachusetts. And by the way, I, I mentioned this on last week's Wachusett Wine and Spirits uh, Whiskey Wednesday video. We are in like a whiskey renaissance right now it's a very exciting time uh at least to me in bourbon of brands that are coming to my state of massachusetts finally available here and you know i've talked about it i have nothing against sourced whiskey you know I, one of the numbnut customers that i had to deal with this week eh, well it's just sourced whiskey like you know so many brands of whiskey are sourced whiskey. Like there's no actual bullet 
distillery or there's no actual redemption distillery. So there's so many, you know, there's no actual tumbling dice distillery. There's no actual Penelope distillery yet. These guys are all buying juice from somebody else. And that's perfectly fine. I have no issue with that other than uh, there is probably 10 brands out there that when I taste them, I go like, I feel like I've tried this before. Oh yeah. It's another brand. And they all have that signature MGP Ross and squib flavor profile. And, uh, you know, there's some great distilleries out there, Smooth Ambler, who are sourcing some of their whiskey and blending it with some of their own. And that's awesome. High West is doing the same thing. Uh, Saints Alley doing the same thing. There's plenty of brands out there that are kind of blending their own juice. That's awesome. But there's such a great time for brands like New Riff, who make all their own stuff, has a unique taste, is absolutely fantastic and affordable. This is the other thing. When you're putting out a brand that relies on sourced whiskey, at retail, you're already paying secondary prices because they had to pay retail for the barrels that they bought before they blended them, bottled them, and got them out to the retail shelf. So some of these brands like New Riff in Massachusetts for the first time, I, I drank a whole bunch of that uh, when my stomach finally cleared up. So good. Bottled in bond, you know, great mash bill, unique flavor. Woodenville out of Washington state, finally available in mass, all their own juice. Uh, when they started making whiskey a little over 10 years ago, uh, they brought Dave Peckerel in to help them. And it shows their whiskeys are fantastic. All their own stuff, affordable right around that $40 mark. Middle West that I just talked about a couple weeks ago on a Thursday night tasting. Their rye is unreal. An early contender for, you know, top 10 whiskey of the year for me. All their own juice right around that $40 mark. Uh, and now, you know, Green River Distilling hopefully will be in mass soon. No sourced all Bardstown Bourbon Company whiskey. Uh, just a very, very exciting time to me in the world of bourbon. Uh, and, you know, hopefully nobody just posts them all on Instagram and goes, here's my haul for the weekend, because uh, that would take away from there. <sighs> I'll save that rant for later on in the podcast. All right. Uh, Pernod Ricard, another one of these giant corporate conglomerates, uh, buys into screwball whiskey. I guess they're hoping long term that screwball is going to be a sustainable product. I don't know. I, I know I sell a fair amount of it. It's what I consider to be a a viable skew. So it's it's something that we bring in and we reorder. It's it's got a permanent shelf spot for me. I just don't know how long the sort of peanut butter whiskey thing is gonna be. Um, maybe it hangs around like like honey whiskey. Uh, I I don't know, but Pernod Ricard is. Definitely banking on that. It'd be interesting to see that now they've invested in it, how they're going to grow it, if they're going to try to do some sort of line extensions or what else can you do with peanut butter whiskey? Uh, maybe just create other things under the screwball uh, name. They are also investing $250 million uh, 
to build a distillery for Jefferson. So Jefferson Bourbon will finally have its own distillery. Pernod Ricard owns them. And then I found this really interesting. Again, in sort of the celebrity spirit marriage realm, this one was interesting. Lenny Kravitz has a Sotol, or Sotol, uh, which is a Mexican agave spirit. Uh, yeah, I tasted my first one maybe six months ago. Not exactly huge. You know, still many, many people who don't know what that is or have never heard of it. But it's very similar to like a Mezcal. But Lenny Kravitz has a Sotol brand called Casa Lumbre, uh, and it's being backed by Pernod Ricard. Just sort of an interesting little tidbit there. Uh, Diageo owned Astral Tequila, expanding with a Reposado and an Añejo, adding to the Astral lineup. Not a bad brand. I just it's a it's what we call a shelf turn. It's just I, I've got bottles of Astral that have sat forever, and uh, Astral used the marketing campaign when. Uh, Dos Equis got rid of the most interesting man in the world. Astral tried to do that uh, with their tequila with him. I still don't think that ever worked. Um, you guys just heard a can crack. Here's another sort of low-carb, low-cal option. And this is something, you know, I just kind of read Heineken is putting out something called Heineken Silver, which is their low-cal, um, low-alcohol beer. We're starting to see this Heineken Silver um, Modelo has one called Oro. Uh, there's a couple of brands of beer that are putting out lower alcohol, lower carb. So there's a, a non-alcoholic version. There's a low alcohol version. There's a light version. And then there's the full strength version, you know, and the full strength might be 5%. <laughs> so in that range of zero to 5%, uh, some of these companies have four different offerings. What I just cracked is the Corona Premier. Again, getting ready for summertime. Uh, and, you know, as much as I miss drinking beer, you know, I don't do it much anymore because of the sugar. So these kind of low-carb, low-alcohol offerings appeal to me because, you know, the ones I've tasted so far taste like beer. And, you know, what is more summery than, than Corona? So Corona Premier. 2.6 grams of carbs, 90 calories. Uh, I don't see an alcohol content on here, uh, but I'm going to assume it's probably lower. And uh, this one comes in can forms. It's in the slim cans. I don't Mick Ultra started doing the slim can thing years ago uh, as a psychological thing because it makes people feel like they're going to be slim if they drink it. I miss the old days of like a wide can. Plus, if you're using a koozie, um, koozies are just too big for these slim cans. But all right, let's give it a taste. Let's see if Corona Premier tastes as good as the real thing. It tastes like a a lighter, slightly watery version of Corona. It's got carbonation. It's got a little bit of hop character. And maybe you're out there going like, yeah, I don't really like Corona anyways. That's fair. Um, but again, there's other brands that are doing similar things. And I think that's my point here of like, you know, if you're like me and you miss just drinking beer, um, because again, 
I can probably drink a whole bunch of beers uh, and still be able to function and talk and hang out with my friends as opposed to drinking a whole bunch of 110 proof uh, bourbon on a hot, sunny afternoon. So there are some kind of low carb, low cal uh, options out there. Uh, this is just the one that I kind of chose to go with right now. I think Lining Kugels makes one. Blue Moon makes one too. Uh, I forget what it's called right now, but it's like a 2.3 carb beer. Comes in a slim can. Um, but there are some options out there. So if you're like me and you're trying to avoid the sugar um, and go back to the OG, which is kind of Mick Ultra, which was the original low carb beer. So there are some offerings out there. Uh, you know, they're they're good. Are, are they great? No, but they don't have to be great. You're out drinking beer and, and playing cornhole. Uh, you're not really breaking down flavors. You're just kind of having fun and enjoying uh, the taste experience. So this is close to a regular Corona, uh, just a little bit sort of lighter. Um, and yeah, a, a little like a watered down Corona, but not bad at all. Mm. All right. A couple more news and notes. Uh, this one I found fun and interesting. You know, the wine industry, I've been talking about it. And people don't want to believe me, but wine is kind of a dying product for, for many reasons. And I won't go too far down that rabbit hole. But I was just reading a report that Australian wines are up. And, and it's we kind of joke about Australian wines are up because really there's only two brands of Australian wines that anybody even recognizes. And I don't know that people even recognize that they're from Australia. Um, but they're up despite the fact that all the top brands are down a little bit, uh, but they're apparently exporting more wines out of Australia. So just because Australian wines are up doesn't mean they're necessarily up in the U.S. Here's what I found interesting about this sort of statistic, though. You know, I, I get these different newsletters and, you know, there are articles like this. And then there'll be a graph of like, these are the top five Australian wine brands. And to show you how kind of top heavy the Australian wine industry is, the number one brand of Australian wine is Yellowtail. And in 2022, they sold 5.5 million cases. Okay. The number two brand of Australian wine is 19 Crimes at 2.2 million cases. Number one, 5.5. Number two, 2.2. There is a Three million case differential between the number one and the number two brand. Oh, by the way, even though 19 Crimes is an Australian brand, the bulk of their sales are Snoop Dogg's Cali Red, Cali Gold, Cali Rose, uh, and Martha Stewart Chardonnay, which are all actually from California. It's all California wines that are being bottled under an Australian brand. And to be fair, there's a lot of California brands, Franzia, um, and some other bulk brands that buy wine from Australia and then bottle it under a California label. But somewhere on the packaging, it will actually say that it's from Australia. So the number one, Yellowtail, five and a half million cases. Number two, 19 Crimes, 2.2 million cases. Number three is Lindemann's at 634,000 cases. So you drop from 5.5 million to 2.2 million to 600,000. The number four brand is Jacobs Creek at 314,000. So the difference between number one, the number four is Jacobs Creek. 
the difference in cases sold between the number one brand and the number four brand is over 5 million case differential. That's not a healthy wine industry to me. That is a healthy wine brand. And by the way, the number five brand of Australian wine is also Yellowtail. It's a brand, sort of a, a line extension that they came up with called Bright, which is their lower alcohol, what they call the better for you category. And so really, the number one and the number five brand of Australian wine are Yellowtail, and the number five brand is 200,000 cases. So the difference, again, between number one and number five, one in five is over 5 million cases. And the, the bottom one is 200,000. Like, I know that sounds like a big number, but it's really not when you, you factor in globally and that most of these wines are like $10 for a 1.5 liter on the shelf. Those numbers aren't that big. Uh, when you factor in, you know, Kendall Jackson's probably 13 million cases a year. Uh, you know, Oyster Bay, uh, Kim Crawford, Sablanc. All right. So apparently I got cut off there. A little technical difficulty. Uh, I just kind of went back and hit record again. So I'm not sure exactly where it left off, uh, but I'll, I'll kind of finish up here uh, just to sort of refresh. Yeah, the number one brand of Australian wine, Yellowtail, at 5.5 million cases. The number five brand of Australian wine, 200,000 cases, also Yellowtail. Um, it's sort of the other thing, well, two other things that I want to get to here in this kind of opening segment. Uh, I had mentioned before that Bordeaux, was uh, having some issues with their wine industry. You know, they were making four, uh, 280 million gallons of wine, but they were selling 240 million gallons of wine. And they had a surplus of 40 million gallons of wine every year for the past few years because the, the wine industry is really just shrinking. So the French government gave Bordeaux the approval to rip up 23,000 acres of vines. So what that means is 23,000 acres where there are grapes planted in Bordeaux, the absolute premier growing region in the world for wine. They are eliminating 23,000 acres of vines so that they can use that land for something else to generate revenue, whether they plant apple trees or build processing plants or whatever it is, but they're getting rid of 23,000 acres of vineyard so that they can use the land for something else uh, to, to make some revenue. This to me, I, I don't know why nobody's talking about it. This to me is absolutely historic. Bordeaux to me is the heart of the wine world. And even they're like, yeah, no, we can't do this anymore. Uh, where, you know, I talked about how total wine was changing their interior footprint to reflect that their wine sales are down and their spirit sales are up. So they're getting rid of, you know, skews of wine 
so they can add more SKUs of something else. And this is just a reflection now in Bordeaux, in Bordeaux, that they're giving up 23,000 acres of, you know, grapes to do something else to make money because they can't make money growing grapes and producing Bordeaux. This is, is historic. This to me represents a paradigm shift in the whole spirits universe. Uh, yeah. And I don't know why nobody is talking about this. Uh, and I, I get like wine clearly is not big among the general public, but none of my wine salesmen or saleswomen, salespeople, uh, none of them are talking about this. Um, again, to me, this is a, a paradigm shift of the spirits landscape. Uh, I, yeah, it's 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 phenomenal and and a bit heartbreaking uh, to me, to be honest. All right, the last thing that I want to touch upon. I couldn't let this go because this is uh, this is getting juicy. I told you guys a few weeks back about Sazerac suing RNDC. And RNDC is the wholesaler for Sazerac or was the wholesaler for Sazerac in a bunch of states. And Sazerac pulled out of RNDC claiming that RNDC owes them money for product. Well, this week, RNDC filed a countersuit against Sazerac. This gets really interesting, and it's really interesting to me here on a local level because I'm starting to see some of what this lawsuit kind of entails here in my local market. So RNDC is suing Sazerac, um, for creating its own marketing team. And this has happened in Massachusetts where all of a sudden there's a couple of people who work directly for Sazerac and Sazerac products go through a whole bunch of different wholesalers here because it's a game that Sazerac likes to play in the marketplace, you know, where they have a brand of vodka called sea ice. And it's literally the same exact vodka as Taka, which are bottom shelf, you know, 1.75 liter plastic jug or handle vodkas, you know, they're probably 12 bucks a handle or whatever. And they literally take the same vodka, they put it in one bottle, slap a Taka label on it, put it in another bottle, slap a sea ice label on it. Taka gets distributed through a company called Horizon. Sea ice gets distributed through a company called Craft Brewers Guild. Literally the same juice. They raise the price on Taka, but they don't raise the price on sea ice. And then let the market just sort of attack each other. You know, they have a product called uh, Ice 101. So it's a 101 proof schnapps. It comes in like watermelon and grape and whatever. They also own the 99 Bananas and 99 Apples brand. And I have sales reps who come in and ask me to carry 99 Bananas. And I tell them that I carry the 101 Watermelon Ice. And they don't know that it's both Sazerac, even though they work for Sazerac. So they're confusing themselves. And Sazerac likes to pit the market against itself. Uh, I guess they feel like they're going to come out winning either way. So they've created this sort of sales force that doesn't work for any of the wholesalers, at least here in Massachusetts, but they go out and they present me with deals. 
uh, and they present me with offers, but they don't take orders. Uh, they just sort of present deals at work for Sazerac, which apparently, and I don't know if it's legal in Massachusetts, but as it turns out, RNDC is claiming that that is illegal. That is a wholesaler's responsibility and obligation in the market, not Sazerac's direct responsibility. Um, and somehow the way this business works is, you know, Sazerac would ship the cases to RNDC and pay Sazerac basically their commission for selling the cases. What RNDC is claiming is that Sazerac lowered that payment to a, a lower amount. I don't know what the original amount was, but I think they lowered it to twelve fifty a case or eight fifty a case. I, I honestly don't know what the other figure is, so I don't know, you know, what the the barometer for that is, what the metric is, what the value is of that. But basically, RNDC is claiming that they lowered the price per case down to this dollar amount on the premise that Sazerac's own in-house marketing team would do a lot of the work for RNDC. So they would get less money, but it would cost them less work to promote the product. And Sazerac is claiming that they had to spend hundreds of millions of dollars promoting the product in RNDC markets because they claim that RNDC wasn't doing enough to promote their products, um, which really isn't on the wholesaler. They're just trying to cram things down people like my throats. Um, and the wholesaler can't do that. They can try to influence all they want, but they don't own the store. So ultimately buyers like myself are going to do what we're going to do. But this is getting really really kind of juicy because now RNDC and Sazerac are suing each other back and forth uh, kind of over this stuff. And it's interesting to me because this sort of in-house marketing team uh, that they're suing about in all these other states, I'm now seeing here in Massachusetts. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, at what point things might change for the way Buffalo Trace and all those products are handled here in mass as well. Uh, I will keep you updated as more info on this uh, becomes available. But really, really interesting stuff that RNDC and Sazerac are now, they're now in a war. Um, and and I hope, I hope in the end it works out best for the customer. Uh, because all this back and forth doesn't do us any good if... We can't get more Eagle Rare and Buffalo Trace and Benchmark and Blanton's just on the shelf for customers so we can get rid of the the Hunter people, which are the ones that are driving me nuts. And we'll talk about that uh, in the next couple segments. All right. I'm going to take a break. This first segment ran a little bit long, uh, but I'm going to go grab some incredible whiskey that I think is tragically, tragically overlooked. Uh, Talk about some some books that I've been reading and then get into, man, the bourbon hunting getting out of control. All right, go grab yourself a drink. I'll be back in a second. All right, I am back. Uh, season three, episode 11. This is the week I almost quit the spirits industry and like i said one of the things i mean one of the things i love the most about what it is that i do you know i love i love tasting things 
and, and it's yeah, I I just have a passion for for finding interesting things and different things and tasting them, and they don't have to be bourbon. You know, I love gins and rums and tequilas and finding quirky things like you know, uh, Sotal and Ricea and you know Pinot de Charente, like quirky and weird. And because what keeps me interested is interesting things. And, you know, besides tasting, the other thing I love, you know, is the people, you know, getting to connect uh, with you guys and, you know, who have become more than customers have become friends of mine that, you know, we text back and forth and, and we talk about stuff besides spirits. And I love that. But one of the things I absolutely am just going insane over lately is the people, you know, and I just, I had a, a couple of customers in the store, um, bourbon customers. I, and I've, I've got a, it, it goes back to like in my mind when I would hear people go like, oh, I like martinis. What do you like? Chocolate martinis, espresso martinis, pumpkin martinis. Well, no, you don't actually like martinis. You like cocktails that are served in a martini glass. Uh, I like music. What do you like? I like country music. What else do you like? Well, I just like country music. Well, then you like country music. You don't like the broad scope of music. And that's fine. You like what you like and you do what you do. But it's become this sort of, I, I don't know, like brash, arrogant, uh, entitled, which is a, a term that comes up a lot in a book I just finished. Um, I, I don't know. It's just, I, I don't, there are people out there who say they love whiskey when they just like bourbon. Um, and to even more narrow that down, they just like collectible bourbon, primarily Buffalo Trace stuff. Uh, and those were the customers that really just, they got under my skin and they almost broke me to the, to the point where I was thinking this week of like, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to deal with these people. And like I said, thankfully, you know, because of you guys, um, yeah, I, I'm still here and I'm still going, but I had my moments of doubt this week. And in sort of retaliation for that, I, I'm drinking whiskey this week on the Spirit Sky podcast. And I am drinking probably the most grossly overlooked criminally underappreciated and undervalued brand of American whiskey on the market. And that is George Dickel out of Tennessee. Um, let, let's see if we can get one here. Uh, there's a nice little cork pop. I, I don't know what the issue is out there against George Dickel. I, every now and then I hear somebody go like, uh, it tastes like Flintstones vitamins. I don't even know what the hell that means. Uh, it, but I think somebody said that that popped up in like a tasting note, kind of like everybody's reaction to like MGP. And they go like, tastes like dill pickle. I get there's some sort of greenness and herbaceousness in there and maybe some notes of dill, but it, it doesn't taste briny and salty either. Uh, but somebody kind of attached to that, and then everybody has attached to that, and it's become the stigma, the dill pickle 
of MGP and the Flintstones vitamin of George Dickel. It's just not the case. And it's a great, great whiskey for great, great value as we're going to see as I go through these bottles. And Dickel, they make a few core products. Uh, they make the Dickel number one, the Dickel number eight, the Dickel number 12. Then they do uh, a yearly bottled and bond release uh, and some other things that we're going to kind of come across along the way. Now, <laughs> because these people kind of made me a little crazy today and I was in a rush to get home, you know, the best part of, of drinking spirits is when you're with friends, um, but sometimes you just need to get away from people and curl up with a good book and a good bottle. And that's what I did a lot of this week. I just finished a book. I feel like I've been on a reading tear lately. Some great, great books. Um, I recently finished Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, uh, which was an inspiration for Anthony Bourdain and is sort of the basis for the movie Apocalypse Now. Uh, I finished Locked In, a book written by a woman named Victoria Arlen, who's an ESPN sportscaster. Uh, I talked about that here on the podcast. I'm at a really good clip. And the one that I just finished this week, and I finished it in just about a week. Again, I've said it before, my eyes get tired. They're not great. Uh, sometimes I can only get about 10 pages in a day. Plus, I work a lot, so I don't really have a lot of time during the day to read. But this one I crushed through in a week. I could not put it down. Um, and it's a book that's been in um, sort of my library here in my bookshelf for a couple of years. It was given to me by a friend of mine. And it's a book called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, uh, written by a guy named Mark Manson, uh, a counterintuitive approach to living a good life. It's a New York Times bestseller, number one book. It sold over two million copies. And for some reason, when I got this book a couple years ago, it was given to me as a gift by my best friend, Murph. I just kind of looked at it and I thought like, no, this is going to be hokey. You know, it's going to be some sort of comedic approach to, to life. And I just kind of shelved it and I never really paid attention to it. And then, you know, I finished up uh, Locked In and I was going to go book shopping and I needed kind of a bridge book. And I just grabbed this kind of on a whim and started reading it. Within the first 10 pages, my whole life was changed. Uh, and I kind of realized that this is a very sort of brash approach to living, but it's deeply, deeply rooted in Buddhism. It just, it, it really has changed my approach to, to life. Um, the things it talks about, uh, you know, how we go about doing things, the the stress and the anxiety that we put on ourselves, the the way the world works that creates stresses and anxieties and, and all the things that we care about that we shouldn't care about and things that we should care about and we don't care enough about. And it's just a great sort of, it, it was it was just a book that kind of brought me back to earth and a lot of things that I, I kind of already believed or had thought of or had, you know, things I had actually said to people over time. Um, and here it was so just sort of validating of like, no, Larry, you know, like, and when I read something like that, I, I never think like, oh, see, I was right. 
I just sort of read it and go like, oh, I'm not the only one who thinks this way. Um, but it is a life-changing book for me. Uh, just a new sort of guideline and a new way to approach how I conduct myself and my business going forward in, in life. And, you know, the whiskey that I was drinking, you know, when I was kind of deciding, and you guys know, like when I, I sit down to do this podcast, half the time I have no idea where I'm going and I'm just kind of sitting here ranting and rambling. And I went out to a store on my way home from work and I know I work in a liquor store, but I stop in other liquor stores because you can't carry everything. And sometimes you got to see what somebody else is carrying to give you some inspiration. Um, and, and maybe that's just sort of a, a goal for life. But I, I went in thinking that I wanted one particular bottle and I ended up buying something totally different. Uh, and then that kind of led me to, you know, this, which, you know, was a perfect side sipper for this book. And it's the George Dickel Sour Mash Whiskey number eight. It's an 80 proofer. So, yeah, I know it's only 80 proof. Um it's Tennessee whiskey. It's not labeled as bourbon. It says sour mash, but really almost all your whiskeys are sour mash. And all that means is that after you make a batch of whiskey, you have some of the, the leftover sort of brewer's beer that you then throw in to kind of start fermenting the next batch. See, on the nose, I don't get that Flintstone vitamin, although I can see if you went in thinking Flintstone vitamin you could probably create it in your brain because so much of smell and taste can be influenced by perception, can be influenced by, you know, as Peter Thomas always likes to, to say to me when we're tasting things together that he's tasted before me, uh, his big thing is, I don't want to lead the witness. You know, he doesn't want to put a thought in my head that's going to make me taste something that I wouldn't naturally pick up on on my own. So, you know, I guess if somebody had said to you, hey, drink this, it's going to taste like Flintstones vitamins. Yeah, you could probably pick that up on the nose. I just think this is a really, really solid, you know, $25 bottle of whiskey. The vital stats on it, and George Dickel uses one mash bill uh, for all their whiskey. It's an 84, 8, and 8. 84% corn, so really, really high corn content. 8% rye, 8% malted barley. I mean, if they age this in used barrels, it would also qualify as a corn whiskey. It's labeled as a Tennessee whiskey, even though it could also qualify as a bourbon. It meets all the requirements, but it meets the extra requirement of Tennessee whiskey, which is that it has to be filtered through charcoal, what's known as the Lincoln County process. And I'll talk about that a, a little bit more as we get into it. All right. Mm. So good. Here's the thing, guys. I, I mean, this, as, as a brand, is just grossly, grossly overlooked, undervalued, like I said. And I don't know why it is because I love mellow corn. And it's funny how this kind of all ties together. And mellow corn is a great corn whiskey made by Heaven Hill. And it tastes like Cracker Jacks to me. It's got notes of caramel. It's got big corn notes. Uh, and it's nutty. 
that's exactly what this George Dickel is to me. It's caramel. It's nutty. It's, you know, it's got a big corn kind of sweetness to it. It's just a really, really good bottle of whiskey for really, really short money. And at 80 proof, it's great as sort of a, a, a side companion to when you're sitting down reading a book like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Because at 80 proof, you can have a glass, you're going to retain what you're reading. Uh, then you can put the book down and still go have a conversation uh, with somebody when you're ready to deal with people again. Um, yeah, a couple of vital sort of stats on Dickel. Uh, it's a Tennessee whiskey, which again means it just goes through the Lincoln County process, which you can actually do with bourbon and filter it through charcoal and still call it bourbon. This is something where Tennessee really just wanted to distinguish itself from bourbon. Uh, I don't know if there's a sort of state rivalry between Tennessee and Kentucky. And not that bourbon has to come from Kentucky, but you know, Kentucky is known as kind of the bourbon capital of the world. But here's some vital stats that are kind of cool when it comes to George Dickel. It is a Tennessee whiskey. Um, they do do the Lincoln County process, but whereas Jack Daniels will actually kind of drip their distillate through maple charcoal and then collect it at the bottom, what George Dickel does is they put charcoal into the vat and then fill that up with the distillate, and that's how they filter it Um kind of like putting a Brita filter right there in the middle of the water. This particular bottling is a blend of whiskeys four to six years old. Again, 80 proof. Uh, yeah, just absolutely nothing wrong with this whiskey at all. Uh, again, just it's grossly, grossly overlooked. So this book, Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, Right away, right in the beginning, it references an author named Charles Bukowski. Uh, and I love how things, <clears throat> you know, in life, we, we never really get to where we're going. Like, if you say, I want to go here, when you get there, like, that's not the end of the journey. It branches off into something else. And it's a very sort of Buddhist concept. So as I'm reading this book, he references an author named Charles Bukowski, who is basically just a sort of drunk, junkie, uh, I think in the 70s, 60s maybe, uh, who late in life became an author and a, a very popular author. And after he became popular and made a lot of money writing books, he still didn't change being a drunk, junkie piece of shit uh, and still conducted himself uh, as so in public. But then what that inspired me to do was to take a ride out to Barnes & Noble. And again, I've mentioned this before, not a huge fan of the big giant corporations, but Barnes and Noble is a bookstore and you can get a lot of different books in one place. Uh, easy to navigate. I, I know it's corporate, but I still enjoy going to Barnes and Noble and going book shopping. And that led me to pick up a copy of Bukowski, which is the next book that I've just started to read uh, post office. Uh, it also reminded me that I needed a copy of uh Jim uh, Carroll's Basketball Diaries, which is was a huge book that I've read four or five times when I was younger. Uh, <clears throat> and then I wanted to reread it. This is basically about Jim Carroll's life when he was like 13 years old doing heroin. 
And I just thought like, you know, I've mentioned it before. My girlfriend works in recovery. Felt like it was a book she should read. So grabbed one of those. And then I found a biography of Anthony Bourdain. And that was sort of my nice haul for the weekend was grabbing three books that were inspired by one book. And then I realized, and I'm looking at the three books in my, my dining room table and thinking like Anthony Bourdain, Jim Carroll, Charles, Buk- Charles Bukowski, like these books all just go together and they're so sort of interconnected in that way. And that is my nice haul. And that, <clears throat> that sort of nice haul thing is a shot at something else that really is just, I don't know, it's getting under my skin in this sort of bourbon world of all the these Instagram posts and these people out there like, nice haul. I just saw one the other day like, oh, my girlfriend got these for me over the weekend. She's wonderful. I don't know how she did it. And it was like a bottle of Weller Full Proof, uh, a bottle of E.H. Taylor Barrel Proof, a board, bottle of George Stagg. You know, it was six bottles of like Buffalo Trace stuff, you know, Blanton straight from the barrel. And supposedly this person got them all in one weekend. I've never had all of those bottles in one store at the same time. And so I I don't even believe that the post is real. I just think it's some sort of status validation picture. But even if it was real, I can't imagine the amount of driving and time taking out of living life it would take to go round up those six bottles in one weekend. It just doesn't seem possible to me. And even if it was possible, it just seems like what a waste. And what do you do with six new bottles of whiskey? And all of those bottles, you know, even if you paid MSRP, which you're probably not, you know, you're talking a thousand dollars of whiskey in a weekend. You've either got some serious fuck you money to spend and blow, or that post just is not real. And you're posting it up there as some sort of validation. And that is not bourbon in, in anything else in life. Shouldn't be about look what I've got. I've got six unopened bottles of whiskey. Uh, that makes me better than you. It should be, um, It should be like what I have with so many of you guys out there uh, where you find an interesting bottle or something new is available, like a new riff, like a Woodenville, like a Middle West. um, We're like, whoa, this is new. This is different. This is interesting. I can't wait to crack this and share this with my friends um, as opposed to I can't wait to put this on the shelf with all my other unopened bottles of cliche hunted bourbons that I'm not going to open, but I want everybody to know that I'm cool because I have it. Uh, It's just an area of the bourbon world that is really, really kind of under my skin lately for, for whatever reason. Um, Well, for the big reason, because those people have now started to bleed (laughs) into my actual existence on a physical physical plane, um, which I'll get into in sort of the next segment. All right. Before I kind of take a break here, I've got one other bottle of Dickel. Well, I've got a few of them here to, to kind of attack, but this is one I've been sitting on this one for a little bit. Let me just kind of chug this one down. Ooh. I usually don't rifle back that kind of 
volume of whiskey, but man, just talking about and and knowing what I'm going to be talking about in the next segment of the these people who have just driven me uh, absolutely insane this week. Yeah, firing down a, a shot of good whiskey. Not necessarily a bad idea right now. All right. Ooh, sorry, I neglected that. Uh, there's a little cork pop. This is a Dickel sort of store pick. So it's the George Dickel hand-selected barrel. I believe this was done for Wegmans when I found this. Uh, it's a nine-year hand-selected single barrel bottled at 103 proof. Different shape bottle than the rest of the Dickels. This bottle is almost kind of like a like a Woodford double oak bottle. It's kind of that flat kind of squat wide bottle. Um, oh man. And on the nose, here's another thing. People who talk about like, Oh, that bourbon's gone bad. You know, I want to drink that bourbon. It Bourbon doesn't go bad. Some of the alcohol vapors might kind of evaporate off. Maybe over the course of 10 years, you might, lose a, a half a point to a point of proof, uh, but it's not going to go bad. Um, it's not fermenting. It's not a live product. It's not like wine where it's living and breathing. Once it's in the bottle, it's in the bottle. You could drink this. You know, I tasted a bottle with my friend Glenn a couple months back. He had found a, a bottle of Old Forester bottled in bond from almost 50 years ago that was open when he found it. And it was one of the most amazing whiskeys I have ever tasted. And it had been open for almost 50 years. So, you know, these things don't go bad. They might soften a little, they might change and evolve a little, but they don't go bad. I promise you that. All right. I would say if you see any of these George Dickel hand-selected barrels out there, they are worth grabbing. All right, here we go. Mm. Toasty oak. Caramel corn. Like a, a hint of like cocoa and coconut. Nutty on the finish. It is the one thing that I get from Dickel. There's a very nutty sort of element to it. Almost like a amaretto-ish kind of thing that maybe that's what people are perceiving as that Flintstones vitamin. I don't perceive it as that at all. I just perceive it as nutty. That is amazing. Yeah. If you see any of these George Dickel hand-selected barrels out there, they are worth, I might have paid 50 bucks for this. But 50 bucks for a nine-year single-barrel whiskey bottled at 103. <clears throat> well, well worth the money. Like I said, the, the Sour Mash ate at about 25 bucks on the shelf. You can find that in Handles. That is a great one to just have on hand. I'm not saying that these whiskeys are blow your hat off. They're not the greatest whiskeys in the world. But they are worth looking into. They are worth picking up. They are worth tasting um and it's criminal that they are overlooked by this sort of uh, i'm new to bourbon customer who only wants to 
who only wants to buy collectible special whiskeys um, and not just buy whiskeys to drink with your friends. <sighs> All right. We'll take a break. Take a little breather here. I've got two great bottlings uh, to taste through with George Dickel um, and tell you guys the story of the two customers uh, who made me almost quit the bourbon world. All right. Go grab yourself a glass, as always, unless you're driving, and uh, meet me back here in a minute. All right, I'm back. <clears throat> Season three, episode 11, the week I almost quit the spirits industry, or at least quit being the bourbon gatekeeper at my store because yeah i i just i had two customers that are sadly sort of representative of i don't the the clichés and i'm not talking about you guys out there listening uh but maybe you know somebody like this and you can tell them to to stop this shit cuz it it really it, it, i don't it's just it's making me crazy, and I know I'm not the only retailer because I'm starting to see like, you know, videos post up on on sort of Instagram um, of guys kind of making fun of some of these customers. So I know I'm not the only retailer who's going through this, uh, but really, it's it's starting to get a bit out of hand, um, and and that's uh, that was a weak cork pop, but the whiskey's good. You know, and that's kind of why I'm drinking sort of the the most overlooked and criminally undervalued American whiskey there is, George Dickel. <clears throat> For whatever reason, you know, all the the bourbon, you know, hunters, ugh, I just have grown to kind of hate that hunters term out there, and the the mentality of it has just gotten so far away from where it should be. Yeah. As you guys can tell, I'm a little fired up, uh, but I just cracked or just popped that sort of weak cork pop you just heard. This is this is the whiskey that makes me want to scream from the mountaintops uh, of just what a value this is and how sadly, sadly overlooked this bottle is. And this is the George Dickel 13-year bottled and bond Tennessee whiskey. Let's put that whole mouthful. George Dickel, 13 year, 13 bottled in bond. So one distiller, one distilling season, government supervised warehouse, bottled at exactly 100 proof, minimum of four years aging. This is over three times the minimum at 13. 13 years. <clears throat> this was the third release. So this was uh, spring of 2007 was when this was distilled. So this was the 2020 release. The 2018 release or the 2019, the 2019 in 2019, this bottling was whiskey advocates, whiskey of the year. <clears throat> now I know. <clears throat> sometimes, you know, whiskey advocate has some stuff on the list where you go like, 
Well, that's weird just for the sake of being weird. But what it does show is that at least somebody else out there knows that this is a good quality whiskey. You know, you're looking at the Whiskey Advocate Top 20. They're all great whiskeys. You know, and the fun thing about lists is they're always cool for debates. Um, I mean, last year's Jack Daniels bonded. Uh, I would have replaced with the Jack Daniels triple mash bonded. Uh, but it 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 allows for fun discussions. But nobody's saying any of those whiskeys aren't good. This was their whiskey of the year. So at least it's one of the 20 best whiskeys that was released that year. And what's the price? Now, let's just think of this. If I told you there was a 13-year Kentucky Owl release, you'd think, wow, that's going to be 200 250 maybe even $300. If it was Kentucky Owl, it would definitely be $300. By the way, I tasted those whiskeys this week. They were absolutely awful. I don't even think they were well-made. The Takumi was terrible, um, especially for $300. I was almost insulted that that was offered to me. But this whiskey at 13 years, 45 bucks in the shelf. And customers ignore it and walk by it all the time. And it is a crime to me um, that the so-called whiskey hunters who claim to know so much about good whiskey uh, bypass this one. So I'm going to get to the story, but I do want to give a quick little breakdown on George Dickel. Uh, mash bill for everything. Again, 84, 8, and 8. Nicole Austin took over, I want to say, five years ago, six years ago, as the master distiller and general manager of Cascade Hollow Distillery. Uh, she is an absolute rock star in the world of whiskey to me. She's right there with Amanda Beckwith, Nancy Fraley, Fawn Weaver. Like these people who are just important in the whiskey industry and, you know, Jackie Zykin, like just rock star female. In the whiskey business, uh, Nicole Austin is right there with all of them. Cascade Hollow opened in 1878. There was an actual guy named George Dickel, a German immigrant, started a market. That market started selling whiskey when they built, uh, well, they started selling spirits, not just whiskey. When Cascade Hollow was opened, he bought a large share in it. Uh, When he passed, he left it to his wife, who... Upon later in life, she sold it to one of the partners. It's gone through a whole bunch of ownership changes. It is now owned by Diageo. Um, George Dickel believed that whiskey made in the winter months uh, was smoother. I guess there's some logic there. Uh, So much so that even to this day, they don't make all their whiskey in the winter, Uh, But they do chill their whiskey down to 40 degrees before they run it through that charcoal mellowing process. He chose to label his whiskey as whiskey without an E to sort of tie him to Scotch whiskey, which was at the time considered the best whiskey in the world. And he truly believed that his whiskey could stand up to any whiskey in the world. So he chose to spell whiskey without an E. Like I said, they were the whiskey of the year in 2019. Here's some interesting facts about George Dickel whiskey as the years go through. Now, again, there were some ownership changes. 
And Tennessee went into prohibition in 1910. So 10 years before the country went into prohibition. So they had to shut down operations in Tennessee. So the owner at that time moved production to Kentucky, where it would eventually be made at OFC Distillery, Old Fashioned Copper Distillery. I don't know if anybody knows what OFC is, but that is present day Buffalo Trace. George Dickel as a whiskey was once made at Buffalo Trace Distillery. Doesn't get any better heritage than that. Uh, eventually, uh, a guy, a company named Shenley would buy it. After Shenley tried to buy Jack Daniels, post-Prohibition, you know, Prohibition ended in 1933. Jack Daniels opened or started making whiskey again in 1940, after Jack Daniels had moved out of the state as well. Uh, Jack Daniels tried to make whiskey in Alabama and in St. Louis uh, to no avail. And after Prohibition, eventually they would move back to Tennessee. Interestingly enough, when Jack Daniels was making whiskey in St. Louis, Missouri, that's where George Remus got in all the trouble when somebody concocted a plan to rob all the whiskey out of the distillery. And then they pinned it on him and he ended up in jail for that. So at one point, actually before they went to OFC, kind of going through my notes here, a little messy, but the, they relocated to the Stitzel Weller distillery in 1917. Um, kind of before Kentucky went into Prohibition. So George Dickel at one time was made at Stitzel Weller, a little distillery that people may have heard of. Uh, and then later it was made at OFC, present-day Buffalo Trace. So we're talking a brand that has, you know, a history that goes back to the late 1800s, you know, and then it was made at Stitzel Weller, and then it was made at OFC, present-day Buffalo Trace, and then after Shenley was unable to buy Jack Daniels, they reopened the Cascade Hollow Distillery and moved the brand back to Tennessee. Some interesting facts about their distilling. They distill to 135 proof. Legally, you can distill to 160. Uh, they go to barrel at 115 proof. You can go at 125. So they're distilling to lower proof. They're going to barrel at lower proof. Uh, they do the charcoal in a vat. They don't drip it through. They do a number four char on the barrel and a number two char on the barrel head. And then really, really interesting is their rick houses are only one story high. Typical Kentucky rick houses are six stories high. So there's a little bit less fluctuation in the barrels. Now, what does that barrel entry proof mean? It means more concentrated flavor and lower yield in the end. And the best example of that is, you know, they're owned by Diageo. Diageo owns Orphan Barrel. Uh, you know, most of you guys have probably seen some of these Orphan Barrel bottlings over the years. But a couple of years ago, maybe two years ago, they put out one called Copper Tongue. And it was an Orphan Barrel that they sourced from the Cascade Hollow Distillery. It was bottled at barrel proof. And here were the specs. It was a 16-year single barrel bottled at barrel proof. That barrel proof was 89.8 proof. And I heard people losing their mind. Like, I'm going to pay all this money for 
less than 90 proof. And then I had a customer buy it who has an adventurous palate who cracked it. We tasted it. And it was one of the most flavorful whiskeys I had ever tasted. Proving yet again that proof doesn't always affect the flavor. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. But if you judge a whiskey solely on its proof, you could be missing the boat. And on that copper tongue, I definitely missed the boat because I shied away from it myself. Getting to taste it, it was absolutely amazing. Full-flavored, stylish, elegant, was a fantastic whiskey. All right, so George Dickel, Bottled and Bond, here we go. Yeah, I mean, still a little nutty on the nose. Here we go. Yeah, I don't get this whole Flintstones vitamin thing. That is delicious. Cornbread, cocoa. The oak is really subtle. Um, and maybe that's just because of that one-story rickhouse. There are so many unique and interesting things about George Dickel whiskey in general. Wow. I haven't had this for a while up until just right here now. And this whiskey is unbelievable. All right. So story number one, customer comes in this week. And, you know, I love the fact that people want to come in and they want to talk bourbon. At the same time, I get kind of I, I almost bored with it because they only want to talk bourbon and so many of you guys out there, again, are not this customer where we're talking, you know, bourbon, we're talking beer, we're talking wine, we're talking brandy, rum, tequila, gin, whatever. Um, and I, I mean, I love talking bourbon. It is what's hot. It is my business. And it is interesting. And it's something I do love. Um, but one, there's more in the world than just bourbon. And two, there's more bourbons than just the collectible cliche hunter bourbons and i had a guy you know they come in and they always ask the same question yeah what do you got that's good what do you got that's special you know and I'll, my response is always like what are you looking for uh whatever you don't have here behind the register like, if it's not here out on the floor available for customers to see either i don't have it or i do have it and it's not for sale uh for one reason or another you know, and and I got in this conversation with this this customer who basically the part where I started to lose my mind was, you know, I, I was talking about how all these, you know, Fortuna, Crema Kentucky, Blue Run, all these whiskeys that are, you know, five to six years. And again, I don't care, but bourbon customers are always chirping about how old something is. And these whiskeys aren't that old, comparatively speaking, to a 13-year George Dickel. And they're all like $85, $90, $110. And they're just, you know, other than being a high proof point on some of them, and not all of them are even that, I, I just don't understand why anybody's paying this kind of money. Um, unless you're commemorating especially, you know, there's a bottle, there's a reason to buy it, uh, but there's not a reason to buy a ton of them. And, you know, the guy kind of responded to me of like, 
yeah, that's what I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for those bottles in the fifty to hundred dollar range because I'm not really looking at thirty dollar bottles. And that to me is just sort of a blind, sweeping, absolutely ignorant statement to make about anything. Um, it, like I just wonder, like, are all your friends just exceptionally successful people? And is that how you judge people? You know, like, do you not have friends who don't have a ton of money or drive a used car instead of a new SUV? Like, like, how do you, like, what is your values? What do you judge things in, in the world by? Like, I'm, I'm only buying 50 to hundred dollar bottles of bourbon that are special and rare and exclusive. Like, I just think like, what a lonely life you must have just hanging out with uninteresting people who just have a bunch of money and, and think that they're great because they have money. I, I don't know. And I just, you know, I'm, I, I try to point out of like, yeah, but why, you know, Knob Creek nine year. And I keep harping on this, but like Knob Creek nine year, hundred proof, $40. And you're telling me you're not looking at that whiskey because it's not expensive enough. Um, you're not looking at Russell's reserve 10 year, 90 proof bourbon because it's not expensive enough. Yet, I guarantee if I blind tasted any of these people against Blue Run, Fortuna, High and Wicked, uh, Cream of Kentucky, I guarantee you in blind taste, they would all take them. But for whatever reason, they're obsessed with spending more money. I don't I don't get it, and it saddens me, and it just sort of makes me think in like a historical perspective of like what farmers in the late 1800s uh, would think you know, while they were making whiskey, what they would think of the bourbon world now, I just feel like they'd go like, are you, are you kidding me? What, oh, what the fuck? Um, uh, all right. This, this is the bottle that inspired kind of the drinking on this episode. And this is the George Dickel bourbon, bourbon. Uh Oh, it's not Tennessee whiskey. This is actually bourbon, aged eight years, eight-year bourbon. Says so right there on the front label, eight years, 90 proof. And what happened with this bottling is as Nicole Austin was going through the rickhouse and doing barrel samples and tasting, she found barrels that exhibited more of a traditional bourbon character to them. Now, all of the George Dickel whiskeys could be labeled as bourbon if they chose to do so. They just don't. They have pride in where they're from, so they label it as Tennessee whiskey. This, maybe it's a cash grab. Maybe it's something Diageo forced them to do. Who knows? Or maybe it's just something they really believe in. I don't particularly care. It's labeled as bourbon. Eight years. And I went in, in true story, I went in because I was going to talk about tequila this week, and I was going to Grab the the Jenner tequila, the 818 or 808 or whatever that stuff was. And I looked at it and I saw the price. And then I just happened to see the George Dickel on the other side of the aisle. And it was 35 bucks. And I went, I, I have to try this. I love George Dickel. And I posted this uh, over the weekend on my Instagram page. And I, I got to tell you guys, I cracked the bottle on Saturday night. And I think I drank half the bottle that night. It was that good. I just, I couldn't stop going back to this bottle. This is an absolute gem. And 
in almost defiance, I'm going to bring it into my store. And I don't care if anybody buys it. I'm going to bring it there to make a stand. And all of my bourbon drinking friends and whiskey drinking friends out there, I promise you guys, this is going to be a must-have for $35. I, I don't know whiskeys that are $35 anymore that are this quality. All right, here we go. I mean, on the nose, yeah, it's got a lot more sort of bourbon-esque notes. A little bit more oak. Here we go. Mm. Mm, mm, mm. Caramel, vanilla, cocoa, coconut, thick, rich, viscous, dark flavors, toasted oak. This bourbon is gorgeous. You know, I have a lot of bottles like so many of us who are, you know, collectors and drinkers do. So rarely do I ever buy the same bottle twice. I am promising you I'm going back to where I bought this. I'm getting another bottle and then I'm ordering a case from my store this week. Um, I will put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to buy a bottle. I'm going to leave it at the store at Wachusett Wine and Spirits. If you guys are in the area, stop by. I will share a taste with you. I will win you over to the George Dickel brand. I promise you that. So the other thing that happened to me this week, man, that's so good, is I had a customer come in on Friday. As I'm recording this, it's it's the weekend. It's actually Sunday afternoon. The sun is out. I've actually opened the curtains in the studio. Uh, I have natural light in here for the first time in a long time. It's pretty nice. Um, and I had a guy come in on Friday and he comes up to me and he says, uh, you rich, you know, I'm looking for you. And I said, yeah, that's, that's me. What are you looking for? Looking for a bottle of heaven Hill 20 year, um, the corn whiskey. So, well, I, I don't have any as of yet. And I've never met this customer before And you know, heaven Hill 20 year corn. It's a barrel proof version of mellow corn at 20 years. I'm very, very excited for this. I'm just not excited for the $300 a bottle price point. In releases like this, I tend to get one bottle, maybe two. Um, I was expecting one bottle of this. And, you know, this guy asked for it. I said, well, I don't, I don't have it. And he says to me, well, I know for a fact you're getting it today. I talked to a guy who he has a connection with the wholesaler or somebody he says, I know a guy who told me you are getting this bottle today. And I thought, what the actual fuck? This is the level that bourbon hunters have gone to. This sort of level of cloak and dagger. You know, you've got a, a, a person on the inside who is feeding you information. And one, shame on the wholesaler. And I promise you, by the next time we talk on this podcast... I'm going to have some answers on this, but shame on whoever it is that is disclosing this information to customers where a customer that I have never, ever seen before thinks that they can circumvent whatever it is that I do because he found out that I was getting it on that day. He felt that he was entitled to be there because he put in the effort to dig up this information. I don't give a shit that you dug up the information. 
What I care about is people. Not those kind of people, but the kind of people who come into my store, who buy beer, who buy wine, who buy gin, who buy rum, who stop and talk to me and become sort of supporters of the store and support me and put the effort in that way. And then say like, hey, if that comes in, I'd like a chance to buy it. Not the guy who comes in or girl, I don't care, uh, who comes in the day it's supposed to come in telling me you've got secret inside information that I'm getting this bottle. And despite the fact that I've got 10 people who have been asking me about this for months since this release was announced, you think that you can subvert all that and just bypass the customers that I have built close relationships with and you're just going to power through with money? And I said, I don't have it. Uh, and I believe the MSRP is going to be like 290 or 300. And he says, Oh, well, if you can get it to me for 260, I'll be happy to take that off your hands. As if these bourbon hunters are doing me a favor because I just bought 50 cases of Evan Williams to get myself one bottle of Heaven Hill 20 year corn whiskey. You're going to do me a favor. You're doing me a solid by taking that bottle off my hands. And then leaving me with the other 50 cases of Evan Williams. It was at this point where I just kind of lost my mind. I thought like, is this really the way the business is going? Is this really the way these people have started to become? They're, they're, they're like stock traders looking for inside info. And then they're going to circumvent the people who have been loyal to me. Not how I do business. Um, not how it's going to be done. And I promise all of you guys, that customer is not getting their hands on that bottle <laughs> to the. All right. So for the second time this episode, technical difficulties. And I don't know if you guys noticed, but the podcast tends to go in half an hour segments because the software I use records in half an hour segments. And apparently I got a little out of control on my rambling and ranting um, that I lost track of time. So again, a customer like that is not going to circumvent the system. Uh, I promise you guys that customer is not getting their hands on that bottle in it's at the point where I have taken that bottle, uh, which is now in the store's possession. It's hidden somewhere in the store where nobody will ever find it. Uh, so the only way that bottle is getting out is through me. And, you know, it just, that situation frustrated me because it made me think like, is this really, is this really the way it, it's going? Um, you know, not only are people not shopping for great whiskey like George Dickel bottled in bond or this eight year bourbon, which is again, I will reiterate, I will put my money where my mouth is. It is fantastic. You know, they're not shopping for anything else other than status bottles, expensive bottles. And now they think they can use money in in power to to get their hands on it. It's not going to happen. And and so I had to kind of have a, a 
a discussion with myself and then, you know, finishing this book, the subtle art of not giving a fuck really, really kind of helped to level me off in that if that is the way the business is going and it's not really the business, it's the people are going. If that is, you know, if the world is going to be bourbon centric and that's what bourbon hunters are going to do, I have two choices, either quit and let it go that way or stick around, get a little stronger, get used to taking these kind of hits uh, from customers like this and hold on to some sort of human value in this industry and in this sort of bourbon or spirits world and, and do keep doing what I believe in doing, which is what I have always believed in doing, you know, whether it's allocated special release bottles, you know, back when I started in the retail side of the business, when I was just doing wine, my thing was then, and it still is now of putting the right bottle in the right hands of the right people for the right occasion and moment. And, you know, I it, it was a crisis of faith for a good part of the week. But in the end, that's what I stuck with is to keep doing what I do for the people that I do it for. Um, and again, I don't oppose these specialty releases. You know, if, you know, I, I've got customers out there who are you know, good customers or customers out there who have become friends who will come to me and say, you know what? It's my dad's birthday. Um, can I get a bottle of Blanton's for my dad if you've got one? And the next time I get one, I can call him up and say, yeah, I've got a Blanton's. Hey, you know, somebody in my family is getting married. I'd like to have a bottle of Pappy 10. All right. Well, the next time I get one, I'll let you know. And if you still want it, you know, putting the bottles in the right hands of the right people for the right occasion, that's what those bottles should be for. And that's what I'm going to continue to do while choosing personally to keep searching out interesting bottles, whether it be bourbon, Tennessee whiskey, American single malt, scotch, Irish, whatever, blended American whiskeys, you know, uh, mezcals, tequilas, rums, anything interesting, I'm going to continue to seek out Um and if I've got to be the gatekeeper and put up with these, you know, hunters who think that showing up once I've never seen you before, you've got some money in your pocket and somehow you think you're going to go around my people, my customers, the people who support what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do as a store, it's not going to work. It's not going to be that kind of store. I'm not going to be that kind of gatekeeper. Um, it's just not going to happen. And so I almost quit, but I didn't, and I'm still here and we're going to keep this thing going and I'm going to keep stocking my shelves at the store with interesting stuff. I'm still going to keep working on getting limited, rare, allocated stuff. I'm just going to make sure it gets in the hands of the right people. Man, this tickle bourbon is so good. I can't wait to have this in the store. All right. Man, that is so good. Yeah, I got a feeling. I'm going to put another 
dent in this bottle tonight. All right, I'm going to wrap it up. Sorry for the weird technical difficulties and glitches on this episode, guys. Um, I did my best. I powered through it, kept going. Um, but if somehow you managed to survive and you're still here listening, you know the drill. If you like what I'm doing here, go to the podcast page, click that follow button, give it a five-star rating, share it out on your social media. Follow on Facebook and Instagram uh, where you can leave comments and reviews about the podcast. You can also message me uh, through both of those platforms. And please do message me. Feel free to go like, hey, this podcast sucked. Or, hey, I really like this. Hey, I don't agree with that. Hey, I do agree with that. I don't claim to be perfect or know all. Um, I just like to start discussions. It's how we lead to progress and growth. So if you've got something to say, please reach out through you know Facebook or Instagram, or you can just email me at thespiritsguide89 at gmail.com. All right, guys, have a great week. Um, thank you, as always, for being there. Uh, it's you guys that keep me going, and it's you guys that keep me from just giving bottles of whiskey to the first customer who comes in the door. I'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you guys so, so much. Cheers. Yay!